Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John, the Gospel of John, or you can look on your sermon guide, and the text today is printed out for you. As we kick off this fall, we are going to be entering into a sermon series, walking through the Gospel of John, which was written for us that we may believe and have life and have life abundantly. And that's exactly what we're going to be examining over the weeks ahead. John begins in this book, he opens with these words, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the light, life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born Not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to stop there. Let's pray for God's blessing on His Word. Father, You are the light of the world. And Lord, we need You to send Your light to illumine our hearts and our minds and our souls Lord, that you would illumine our hearts and minds, that we would understand your word, that we would understand who you are, and that knowing who you are, Lord, that our lives would be aligned with you and reoriented around you. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. It was a few days before Thanksgiving of 2017 that Dalen McCullough, who is the running backs coach for the Kansas City Chiefs, picked up the phone, and he made a phone call to a woman named Carol. And he called Carol, and he said to her, "Um, my adoption papers have recently been released by the courts, and I've been looking for my parents, and I wonder if you indeed are Carol Briggs, and you had a son born to you, of 42 years ago on December 7th. She indeed confirmed that she was, and what happened happened in her story was that Carol was 16 years old when she got pregnant. After her child was born, she immediately put her child up for adoption, and um, she put her child up for adoption, and her son was then brought into a family um, with adoptive parents who were named Adele and A.C. McCullough. They adopted their child, and they renamed him, and they named him Dalen, and began to raise him. However, by the time he was two years old, their marriage fell apart, and A.C. left, and uh, Adele was left to raise Deland and her brother by herself. And she was determined that she would, that her sons would get a good education. And so she made sure that they stayed in school, that they did their homework, that they were responsible, and that they would uh, get the education that she knew that they needed. 
And as they began to get older, they stayed in school, and they also demonstrated an aptitude for football. And so Dalen began playing football, played football in middle school, played football in high school, and he began to be, was noticed for his outstanding athletic abilities. And so it was, the story picks up, that in his third period English class at Campbell Memorial High School, he was looking out the window and he saw a tall man emerge from a candy apple red Mercedes Benz with tan interior and tricked out gold rims. A few minutes later, he got a pink slip message to leave class and go to the office, where a tall man stuck out his, said, hit, stuck out his hand and said with a firm handshake, Hi, I'm Sherman Smith, the running backs coach at Miami University. Sherman Smith, who was his coach, himself was a quarterback at Miami. He was a second-round draft pick. Um, at running back for the Seattle Seahawks, where he went on to play eight years in the NFL. Smith, Coach Smith, had a booming voice. He had thick arms and broad, square shoulders. He walked and talked and carried himself like a former pro, and McCullough was immediately drawn to him. McCullough's reflection on his interaction with Coach Smith was he said, yeah, it was just something about his personality. The way he presented himself He had things that I had never seen in a man or in a mentor. He was on top of his details. He was successful. He played in the NFL. He got his degree. I wasn't around that type of person. He also reflects that Coach Smith was a woman who was hard not to love. His mom said that she fell in love with him the first time that she met him. He was just a gentleman. He was attentive and very respectful. And Coach Smith shared his philosophy that he adopted towards Dalen and towards all of his athletes who worked under him. He said, at the beginning of each season, I would tell the players, I would say, you may not be looking for a father, but I'm going to treat you like you're one of my sons. And so I just looked, he says, and so I just looked at every guy like he was my son. I just wanted to be a positive role model for Dalen and to exemplify what I thought my father exemplified for me. And so Coach Smith began to be the father that Dalen never had in his life. Dalen Dalen would say that he was everything. He said, if anything was going on, I was going to talk to Coach Smith. He says, it wasn't just me, but everybody in the room gravitated towards Coach Smith just because that's the type of person he was. what, What he's about rubs off on you. And so I always wanted to be around him. And subsequently, Coach Smith became a mentor for Dalen McCullough for years to come. Whenever he had a major decision, he would go and talk to Coach Smith. He would wrestle, talk with him about what he was wrestling through. When he began to go into coaching himself, he also asked him for advice on how to do that. And yet, while Coach Smith fulfilled this role in his life of this man, this mentor, this father figure, there was this gnawing, nagging question that he always dealt with. And he wrestled with the question of, who are my biological parents? Who am I? And where did I come from? Where is it? Who did I get this athletic build from? Who did I get this sharp jawline from? Just exactly who are my parents? Who am I? Where am I? Where, where have I come from? And it was a question that never went away. The Gospel of John is written to introduce the truth of who Jesus Christ is to introduce this concept of who God is and what God has been doing in this world. 
And John begins and he opens up with what, he, which, with what is, quite frankly, a little bit of a philosophical, philosophical ethereal, high 20,000-foot argument that he, that he begins with. And he begins, and people, please don't text me during the church service, um, and maybe I can turn off my ringer uh, when that's happening. Um, <laughs> um, and so John begins this gospel, this message, and he begins by introducing to people who exactly is God for people that have never heard of him. He's beginning to address to people, people who are wrestling with this question themselves, who, who am I? Where exactly did I come from? And, and why on earth am I here? And what, what is the meaning of all of this? What is the meaning of all of this anyway? And so beginning to address this, John speaks to both a a Greek audience and a Jewish audience and a Greek-Jewish audience when he writes the letter of John. And he writes to them to begin to introduce them first off exactly what is the reality of God in the universe. And in explaining to this, this is what John says to them. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Who's the Him? It's the Word. All things were made through the Word, and without Him, without the Word, was not anything made that was made. In Him, that is, in the Word, who was with God and was God, in the Word was life, and the life was the light of men. And so John begins to introduce the reality of who God is. And he says, in the beginning was the word. The word here for word is the Greek word logos, and that's very significant because it is a word that is loaded with a freight train full of meaning when he writes it to this audience. Because for the Greek audience, the Greeks who were there, the word logos, it meant word, but it also meant reason. It meant order. In fact, sometimes it actually meant science, and it could be used for science itself. Um, it could be used in other, in other writings to refer to a person's inner thought life. You see, what the, ancients ha- what the ancients did is that they looked around at the world. They looked around at nature. They looked around at the way that the seasons worked. They looked at the tides. They looked at the way that animals were symmetrical in their, uh, in their bodies, you know, and, and symmetrical in their bodies and the way that nature was designed and how things certain worked in the agricultural cycle. And they looked around at their world and they saw that there was harmony. They saw that there was balance. They saw there was regularity. And they saw that there was an order to the way that the, the natural world works. And so their conclusion was that there was a, there is this spiritual cosmic principle of order. There's a spiritual cosmic principle of order that guides everything that gets expressed in people's lives. And this spiritual cosmic order, this thing that orchestrates everything and brings everything together in rhythms and regularities and order, this thing is called logos. So the Stoics, who are one group of Greek philosophers, they argued that there was a rational principle behind everything that exists. And the seeds of this rational cosmic principle were present within each and every human soul. So they would say, we believe in logos. We believe that the world has order. We believe that the world has reason, that there is a spiritual unity and harmony, that there is an order and regularity to everything that we see in this life. Fast forward to today. 
There's many aspects of that statement about what the Greeks believed that's really kind of similar to what scientists believe today. Scientists, according to the National Science Teachers Association, define science this way. They say science is a method of explaining the natural world. It assumes that the universe operates according to regularities, and through, in, through systematic investigation, we can understand what these regularities are. So what are scientists saying? They're kind of saying the same thing that the ancient Greeks said. When we look around at the universe, there are certain regularities and principles. There are certain ways that the world is organized and the ways that the world operates. And scientists are saying, therefore, if we study these things because of the regularity, through a systematic investigation, we can understand some of the principles that exist and how the world works. For the ancient Greeks, though... For them, there was no other god, no other higher power aside from the Logos. And all that exists in your ability to think stems from the seeds of the Logos that you have within you. I know we're, we're flying into some philosophical realms here, but keep that in mind. Now, at the same time as he uses the word Logos to address the Greek audience, and he's drawing that information in, to the Hebrew audience to the Hebrew-Greek audience, to the Hebrew audience, the word word would have different meanings from Scripture. For the Old Testament was filled with this idea of the word. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word used here would be logos. And so it was that the way that God acted in the world was through his word. Beginning in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, Psalm 133 reminds us, For God spoke, what does he speak? His words, for God gave his word, God spoke, and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Isaiah reminds us that God's word actually does stuff. He says that God's word, verse 11, so my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So Isaiah is declaring that the word of God, when God sends out his word, it's not just noise that's going out, but his word actually does stuff. His word actually has a effects change and accomplishes the purpose that God has for it to occur. And then there's many other, other passages. When God's people were sick and with disease, Psalm 107 says, they cried out to the Lord, verse 20, God sent out his word, his logos, God sent out his word and healed them. How did he heal them? He healed them by his word, and he delivered them from their destruction. And then again and again, when the prophets spoke, the way that the scripture t- terms it is they say, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah and to these various other prophets. And so the word is this idea, this, the, the, the actor of God's creation, the actor of God's revelation, the actor of God's deliverance, and the actor even of God's judgment. So John begins and he says to his audience, Greeks, yes, there is a divine logos. Hebrews, yes, there is, the word of, there is the word of God that has been acting since the foundation of the world and since the creation of the world. Yes, both of these two things come together, but in order for you to know him, in order for you to fully comprehend who this logos is and how this logos works, what's going to be required is for you to redefine your most fundamental beliefs about life. Even this initial phrase, 
really clarifies, in these initial two verses, really clarifies the reality of God versus so many distortions of it, present back then and also present today. Just briefly look at five of them. Is that the reality of God is not paganism. Paganism has a very high view of the created world. In fact, too high a view. Paganism looks and says there's, there's a spirit in the trees, and there's a spirit in the rain, and there's a spirit in the ocean, and all of these are a part of the spirit of Mother Earth that we need to connect ourselves with in. And that Mother Earth, the spirit of paganism, Mother Earth, is the, is the, uh, the one from whom everyone comes. And when Scripture says, no, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning... And all things were made through him and without him, not anything made but that was made. What Scripture says is, no, in order to know God, the reality is this, is that God is, that, is, that God is eternal. He is pre-existence. Everything that has a beginning found its beginning in him. Everything that has a beginning, think about this, everything that has a beginning found its beginning in him. What does that say about the Logos, it's be, he was before the beginning. It says that he was eternal. He was before anything began. He was preexistent. He is, and then it goes on to say, the creator, stated positively and neg- negatively. All things were made through him, positively, stated negatively. And without him, not anything was made that was made. The word, the Logos, was the one that created everything, and he himself was never created. Stark contrast to paganism. But similarly, what is described in the opening church verses of John, the reality of God is also not secularism, as the second one here. It's not secularism. Because secularism argues that the entire world was made by an accident. That you're an accident, that the universe was an accident, that I'm an accident, everything is an accident. And when Scripture says no... The world was made by God and through God and for God. What that means is that there is a purpose. There is a reason why within you there is this gnawing, nagging, aching feeling that there's got to be something more. There is a reason why you wrestle with the question, what is the purpose of life and why am I here? And the reason why you wrestle with that is because God created you for a purpose. Because there is design that you're not an accident. And in order for you to know that purpose and fulfill that purpose, you need to align yourself with the Almighty God who created you and designed you. By the way, as an aside, for a a longer discourse at another time, if the world is an accident, there is absolutely no basis for morality. If If it is an accident, there is absolutely no basis to say that one person is wrong and another person is right. There is no basis to say why one accident matters and why one accident's opinion is more worthwhile than another accident's opinion because it all just happened, all just happened to pop up. But it's not secularism. Third thing is that it's also not mysticism. And this would be include the mysticism of, of pantheism, Hinduism, uh, Shintoism, certain forms of Taoism, and other things. Very dominant view across the world. Core, core tenet of mysticism is that this world... Your life is an illusion. Everything is an illusion. Just as one drop of rain falls from the sky and eventually 
that goes into the ocean where it is, known as, it is no longer known as an individual raindrop. So too your life, they would argue, so too your life is one little individual drop of rain eventually, eventually to find itself in the global conscience as it loses itself. Your whole life is an illusion. Suffering is, is, is an illusion. Everything is, is an illusion. Anything that you think is material ultimately is an illusion. And if you want to have fulfillment, if you want to attain a level of enlightenment, it would be argued. You need to realize it's an illusion, deny the material world, and just live in the spiritual illusory world. And what Scripture says is no. The world's not an illusion. What you know instinctively to be true actually is true. That there is a real world, and you're living in it, that when you smash your hand with a, your thumb with a hammer, it actually hurts because there is a real world and a real material world that you are living in. And this real material world was created by God, for God, through God, and since God created it, it matters. And this world matters. And your relationship to the material world matters as well. Another one, sorry Star Wars fans, it is also not... It's also, it's, it's also not um, a, this form of dualism. It's also not Gnosticism. It's also not this yin and yang. That there is the good force, there are these two cosmic powers, cosmic energies. There's the good and the evil. And if a good one rises up, like Ren, for example, if a good one rises up, that there has to be a corresponding evil power. That these two things have to balance each other out and they're always held in tension and you can't have one without the other. Scripture says no. It says the light shines in the darkness. What is darkness? Darkness is not the opposite of light. It is the absence of light. Light and darkness are not in tension with each other. Light shines into the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The fifth one here also, and this is the one that has the biggest influence in American Christianity, is this. Is that the reality of God is not dualism. It is not this... This false idea that the spiritual world is good and the material world is bad. It's a dominant thought in most of the world. Material world is bad, the, physical, the spiritual world is, world is good. Now, when you get this through things, if you look at so many products that say, um, that create a really stark division between body and soul, that you need to take care of your body and soul as if these are two separate, two distinct, two separate, two distinct things. What does Scripture say? It says, yes. Is there a material world? Absolutely. Is there an unseen spiritual world? Yes, absolutely. There is no ultimate division between the two. They're not separated. In fact, they're interrelated and intercreated. And the reason why they're interrelated and intercreated is that both of them spring forth from the creator God, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things are created. The one by whom and through whom and for thing, and through whom all things hold unity and origin and purpose and have logos all coming together. So here is what John is introducing. He's saying, yes, there is meaning in this world. Yes, there is order and there is regularity. Yes, there is purpose and harmony. There is wisdom and there is synergy. And if you want to align yourself with the Logos, if you are want to do so, it is not going to be found through some detached, isolated quest for meaning. It's not going to be found through being true to yourself and the self-expression of whatever is most meaningful to you. 
It's not going to be found through a quest. It's not going to be found through a philosophy. It's not going to be found through a principle. It is going to be found in and through the one who is the preexistent, eternal, personal creator in whom and through whom all life exists. That is the reality of who God is. However, as you know well, many people don't accept this reality. And instead, they reject it. And the rejection of God is not new. It has been around for millennia. And Scripture says this in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's what happens. The light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What Scripture is saying is that despite the reality of God, there has been a long time, there has been a long rejection of the truth. There has been a long rejection that God is the Logos, that there is meaning, there is the one source, one originator of life. Long, there has been a long rejection of the truth. You know, our recent uh, political situation, I think, once again, serves to highlight what the American populace certainly has known all along, and every who's ever in power just reminds the American people that this, of this reality. And it is the truth that truth, facts, and reality are often irrelevant, whether that's from statements such as, Truth isn't truth, or from statements such as, well, it depends on what the meaning of is is. The American populace has long known that people, politicians in particular, selectively pick truth to advocate their position. And if there is truth that is against their position, they reject it. Not because it's true, but but their acceptance and rejection of the truth oftentimes has no bearing on whether or not something is true. And it's true in other areas of life as well. And so, what John is highlighting here is here is the reality of God. And the reality of who God is and the truth of who God is is not determined by whether or not people accept it or people reject it. Because people reject truth all the time. And John is saying, and this has been going on since the history of the world, Now, there's two ways, typically, that people reject the truth. And we see it here in verse 5. It says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Some of you, if you've memorized this verse from long ago, you hear that verse and you say, Wait a second. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. Would be another translation. And so some Bibles translated as has not overcome it, and some translated as has not understood it, not comprehended it. Scholars would say that this is an example of John's deliberate ambiguity, planned ambiguity, that he is deliberately using a word that has two very strong meanings. And he's saying that John uses this to emphasize both of them. And they exemplify two ways that people reject God. Some way people reject God by trying to overcome him, by trying to be hostile towards him. Others reject God because they don't comprehend and they don't understand, and because they don't comprehend and don't understand, therefore, they end up rejecting him. But these two different ways, 
All of us know people who are hostile to Christianity. We know people who, for whom who are hostile to the idea that, really hostile to the idea that Jesus is the absolute truth behind the universe. And people who are hostile to the idea that there's even any truth at all. And in John, in the subsequent weeks ahead, what we're going to see is you're going to see many people who reject Jesus, and the rejection of Jesus has absolutely nothing to do with the truth that they have seen with their very eyes. And the history of the world shows that there are many people who have tried to overcome Christianity, tried to overcome the reality of God through persecutions of the persecution of those that hold to this truth. More subtly, there's other people who try to overcome the reality of God by taking the Christian message and co-opting it for their own purposes. And they take the Christian message and they use the Christian message or some aspect of the Christian name for their own personal gain, whether political or financial or other sort of gain. Either way, it's people who are hostile to the reality of God and are trying to overcome it. For other people, the way that they reject God is they don't comprehend. They don't understand. Sometimes this is just because they're in darkness and they haven't the light, they haven't known the light and they haven't understood. For other people, it is because they have positioned themselves to not understand. Let me return back to this statement from the National Science Teachers Association about their definition of science. They continue and they write this. The methodology of science emphasizes the logical testing of alternate explanations of natural phenomena against empirical data. It continues and says, because science is limited, this is their own definition, because science is limited to explaining the natural world by means of natural processes, it cannot use supernatural causations in its explanations. Similarly, science is precluded from making statements about supernatural forces because they are outside of its provenance. So what this statement in and of itself is saying is science deliberately assumes or takes a position in its study that, that everything is, called, is caused by natural causes. Methodologically, their method is to seek to explain what happens by natural means, by what they would use the term empirical data. There's some issues with what they mean by methodology, but that's not, neither here nor there for, this, for right now. And so they say their method is to, do, is to seek to explain things by natural processes, which, as an intellectual pursuit, isn't really problematic. Anytime a scientist does anything, they make a given set of assumptions in order to, make their, in order to do the experiments that they're working on. And they're saying, we're just seeking to understand by natural means the way that this occurs. And so the methodology isn't a particular problem. What becomes a problem is when that methodology turns into a philosophy when that methodology turns into a statement of beliefs. And suddenly, the statement of beliefs is, there is, as opposed to it saying, science is limited to explaining the natural world by means of natural processes, they go back and they're saying, no, there is only a natural world, and there are only natural processes. That the only thing that exists is what I can touch, see, smell, and taste. That the only reality there is, is the material world. And at that point, it is no longer a, method a methodological position, it's a philosophical position. It's a belief position. And I might point out that it is a belief that is, that is asserting that the material world is all that there is. And such an assertion is nothing more 
than an unsubstantiated assertion of blind faith. Why do you hold to the position that the material world is all that there is? The only answer you're going to get is, I just believe it to be the case. It's an unsubstantiated assertion, which ironically is doing the very thing that they're claiming that they're not doing. Thus, what happens is that if you have people who take this as their philosophical position, who that their position in entering the world is to say, there is no supernatural realm. There is no other world. There is no spiritual force. There is no cosmos. cosmos. There is no logos. You have a group of people who not only do not comprehend, but have positioned themselves to preclude, to prevent their ability to even to understand these things or to ask these questions. And thus what happens is that those who are in greatest danger of not knowing the reality of God aren't those who don't comprehend simply, but it's those who confidently say, we do comprehend when their comprehension precludes the very thing that they're they're seeking to understand. I would just urge you that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would urge you to know God and that you seek to know God and and to know God that you not merely strive to remove any hostility towards Him nor simply to understand Him, though you do need to understand Him. Is that I would urge you not simply to remove the hostility And not simply to try to understand him, but there is something more profound that needs to happen. Is that not only do you need to know the reality of God and not reject God, but you need to receive him. You need to receive him. Look at what the text says in verses 12 and 13. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To all who did receive him, to those who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Is everybody a child of God? No. Does everybody have God as their father? Scripture says, no. Now, in the one sense that because God's the creator of all, and if you want to say that a creator is the father, therefore he's the father of all, yes, But he's not a father relationally. He's not a father personally to everyone unless they receive him. And what Scripture is concerned about here is something far more profound than simply intellectual coherence, though the reality of God will give that, rightly understood. He's concerned about something far more profound And up until this point in John's discourse, he has left out one key attribute through which all of this holds together. And he has withheld it in his argument to this point. And this is what he states in verse 14. That this word, this word, this preexistent word, the eternal, personal, creator God, this logos that has existed before the beginning of the world, this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This preexistent, eternal, personal creator, this word became flesh. This word is Jesus Christ. This word is the only way to know God. It is this word who is now manifested in Jesus Christ. And so John begins this gospel with this introduction. For he knows that in the pages that follow, 
It'll be a story of Jesus. It'll be a story of, of a man who lived among humankind. It'll be a story of a man who lived and walked and breathed in space and in time, who ate food, who went to sleep, who was tired, who was bodily crucified on the cross and bodily resurrected from the grave. He knows that he is about to tell a story about a man among men. But as he enters into this story, he says, you're about to hear a story about a man among men, but know that this man is the man who is beyond time, who stands outside of time, who is pre-existent, who existed before anything began. This man who is the originator of creation, by whom and through whom and for whom, by whom and through whom and for whom everything was created. It is this man who exists outside of time, who has deliberately entered himself inside of it. And he has become a part of it. And that if you want to know the reality of God, it is going to come only through knowing Jesus Christ. That every person, within every person, there is this longing to know the ultimate secret of their life. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? And John is saying, if you want to know the answer to those questions, they will only be found in Jesus Christ and as you receive Jesus Christ. And if you do not do so, you will be one who continues to live in darkness. For to know God is to receive Jesus. To receive him means to admit that you're in darkness. It means to acknowledge that, yes, he is the God of the universe. It means to acknowledge and to say, Jesus, I receive you as the Lord of my life, as the one true light of my life. I receive you as the one and only in whom and through whom everything holds together, and I submit to you as the Lord of my life. Shortly after, confirming that Carol was indeed his mother, Dalen said, who's my father? And she said, well, I suppose you have a right to know. There's only one other person that knows. And actually, I never told your father that I was pregnant. But he's a man who is a... uh, um, professional football coach now, and his name's Sherman Smith. And so a few weeks after the paternity test came back and things were confirmed, Dylan McCullough was on a recruiting trip near Nashville where Coach Smith had relocated with his wife after retirement. And McCullough made a special trip to see this man who had been his father figure throughout his whole life to see the man who now he knew as his biological father. And Coach Smith reflects on that day, he reflects on that day and what was going through Dylan's mind. And he says, yeah, I'm pretty sure he was nervous. I laugh because I'm looking out the window because I know he's supposed to be coming and I'm standing there and I see that he parks at the corner at the end of our street and he's parked there for five minutes. And I said, what is he doing? And then he finally pulls up and gets out of his car. The story continues, as McCullough walked up the steps to the house, house, Smith greeted him, and he greeted him with open arms and said, my son, and it was the first time that in McCullough's life anyone had ever called him that, or any man had ever called him that. Smith said, he said, for so many years, 
that I was around Dale, and the embrace was, hey, coach, how are you doing? But this is, man, this is my son. I don't know, maybe I was doing it for him, maybe I was doing it to help, or maybe I was doing it for me, to help me really, to help me, to help me fully understand. And McCullough reflects on that day, he says, you know, I knew that when he said, my son, I knew he was saying it from a place of saying, I'm proud. He said, I'd never heard that before. I'd never been referred to like that before, period. And it really hit me hard emotionally. When I sit there at this point and I'm looking at the things that I've done, I'm happy that I'm able to be somebody that he's proud of. His adopted mom said this when she was asked her reaction to the truth. She said, all I can say is, are you serious? Over and over again, are you serious? It's just a miracle that his birth father has been in his life since he was 16 and 17 years old. That his birth father is the one who has a photo signing his commitment letter to the University of Miami. That it's his birth father who was the one that was standing along him on the sidelines. That it was his birth father who was standing there taking pictures of him when he set records on the football field. That his birth father was the one who continued to coach him through every major life decision that he had. And his mom said, that's my son and I want nothing but 100% for him. He needed that and God gave it to him in God's own timing. And there was Dayland looking for his father, not knowing, and his father not knowing even, that his father had known him all along. There is this mysterious thing that happens. There they are. There is this mysterious thing that happens when someone receives Jesus Christ. Is that when they receive Christ, and when they receive Jesus himself, when they receive that Jesus is the word in whom all things hold together, when they receive that Jesus is himself the gospel, that it is in Jesus that life is found and it is found nowhere else, there is this mysterious thing that happens. And Leslie Newbegin characterizes it this way. He says, when a person turns in faith to Jesus Christ, he meets not a stranger, but he meets one whom he recognizes as the one in whom he was loved and chosen before the foundation of the world. That when you turn and put your faith in Christ, you realize that you now know the one who has known you before your days even began. And so for each one of us, what this means is that wherever we are in our spiritual journeys, it means that the way that we need to live is not trying to be hostile, not because we don't like something, not trying to live, trying to overcome God because we don't like something in his life, some way that he's handled us, some way that we've, he's responded to a situation, not trying to overcome him, but that we live instead seeking to understand and comprehend that we would receive him and know him as our heavenly father. Let's pray together. Father, you are the light that shines in the darkness. Lord Jesus, you are the one who left your home in heaven and came to this earth, entered into time and space, so that we who wander in darkness would know your light, and not just know your light, but know your life. And it is a remarkable truth that in you all things hold together. So much so that, Lord, that when we come to know you, we're coming to know the one who has known us all along. So, Lord Jesus, would you encourage us in this truth? Would you encourage us to know you and to love you and to praise you? Because you alone are our Heavenly Father.
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.